Let me ask you to go ahead and open up to the Gospel of Luke. And this morning we begin a new chapter in our verse-by-verse study of this book. We come to chapter 8. So the Gospel of Luke in chapter 8. It's quite a chapter, actually. It has some of the most wonderful and important passages, accounts, teachings, and all of the Gospels. We're going to spend some time in Luke 8, but it's a wonderful passage, a wonderful chapter. We live in interesting times. Part of what makes today so unusual is the confusion that surrounds us related to gender. For many, gender seems to be everything, and then at other times, nothing. Uh, When issues are about gender inequality, equal pay for equal work, uh, maternity leave, issues related to abortion, uh, sexism in the workplace, gender becomes everything. We begin to look at every issue, every part of culture through the lens of gender. But then again, when the issues are about transgenderism or issues related to the LGBTQ movements, suddenly our definitions get squishy. We're told, well, actually, gender isn't real or it's a spectrum. It's something fluid. It has no fixed nature. It has no fixed purpose. We live in a day in which our culture is speaking out of both sides of its mouth. It can't decide whether gender really, really matters or it doesn't matter at all. Our culture can't decide whether gender actually exists and if it does, how to define it. And probably one of the most obvious examples of this is the fact that if you go to Facebook and sign up for an account... It will give you more than 70 possible genders for you to decide which one you want to be known as. I'll give you just a partial list. You can choose asexual, female to male trans man, female to male transgender man, female to male transsexual man, gender neutral, intersex man, intersex person, intersex woman. Male to female trans woman, male to female transgender woman, male to female transsexual woman, man. Polygender, two-spirit person, agender, androgyny, androgynous, bigender, cis, cis female, cis male, cis man, gender fluid, woman. Gender questioning, gender variant, gender queer, non-binary, Pangender, transsexual female, transsexual male, transsexual person, transsexual woman, transgender female, transgender person, transmasculine, two-spirit. And the list goes on. And if none of those work for you, at the end you can click other. There is no doubt that in a sinful, fallen world... People are born with all kinds of conditions, both physically and psychologically. 
And there really are people for whom the way they feel does not match their biological gender. But rather than affirming the objective reality of gender, our culture seeks to make feelings ultimate. We've determined that a person's feelings are the decider of truth, and this has meant the loss of understanding about gender. In fact, we're now finding that many in the rising generation believe that just being identified as a man or as a woman is too plain and uninteresting. High schoolers and college students are telling us that you really don't get much attention unless you can identify as something a little more unusual. That's a tragedy because gender is glorious and wonderful. Genesis 1 confirms what science and common sense tells us. God created man as male and female. And not only is this a fixed reality, it is an intentional reality. God created man as male and female on purpose, with good purpose, with blessed purpose. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That verse in Genesis is poetry. It's a song. It's celebrating that something glorious and huge was happening. And then we're told that man was given his purpose to have dominion over the earth, to be in micro what God is in macro, right? To represent God in this world, to finish the work that he began in working the earth and cultivating it, bringing from the earth good things. And doing this, we would display God's own characteristics now embedded in us. We would worship God through imitation. But mark this, God made man as male and female because in his wisdom, that is how we would fulfill our purpose. There is a beauty to the complementary nature of men and women as we seek to fulfill the mission God has given us as mankind. Men alone cannot fill the earth. Women alone cannot fill the earth. It is men and women together. And in the interplay between the sexes, both in the mystery of marriage, but also just in the differing roles that God created men and women to fulfill, the glorious attributes of God are on display. In the Godhead himself, there is a wondrous interplay between strength and tenderness, between leadership and submission, between protection and provision and and nurturing and love and fierce loyalty. When we try to get rid of gender, when we try to flatten everybody out to make them all the same, so that men and women are all just the same thing, What we're doing is actually beginning to blaspheme God because we begin to bear a false image of who he is. Remember, this world and our existence is not really about us. It's about him. And we will find that the path of blessing and highest joy and human flourishing comes not when we reject gender, 
but when we embrace the truth of male and female. Now, why am I talking about that today? Is it because today is International Women's Day? I didn't know it was until I woke up this morning and saw it in the news. No, we're talking about this because it just happens to be what's next as we're studying the Gospel of Luke. As we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we stick to the Bible, we who hold to man as male and female are going to find that there are times when we really begin to stick out in this world. We're going to make decisions that make our neighbors scratch their heads, especially if you embrace the idea that men and women are to have different emphases in their roles within the family, the home, the church. Our our culture is not going to understand you. But Jesus also made decisions about gender that caused people to scratch their heads. And we see one of those right here in our opening verses of Luke 8. So look with me at Luke 8, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Luke 8, verses 1 through 3. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God... And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So, We're beginning to come to the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Over the next two chapters, we will see Jesus continue to minister and say and do amazing things. But by the end of chapter 9, we will find that Jesus' time has come. And he will set his face to go towards Jerusalem to be crucified. Now, obviously, there's a lot of Luke left after Luke chapter 9. And Luke will have much to tell us about the preaching and the miracles of Jesus that lead up to his actual arrest and death. But for now, we're continuing in the northern part of Israel, Galilee. And we see that Jesus has not changed his message in his months and years of ministry. At the very beginning, he came preaching the kingdom of God. And now, at least probably a couple of years into his ministry, he's still preaching the same message. You see what the verse says. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He is calling people to be part of that eternal kingdom by turning from their sins, humbling themselves before God, and receiving the salvation that God gives. He's calling people to follow him because he is the king. Of the kingdom of God. And by his mercy he will make them his subjects and citizens of his kingdom. Just to note there, Mount Hermon, we have been in existence since 1903. And we have been preaching the same message of the kingdom since then. May God help us that we would never allow our central message to change. 
As the years go by, as we get older and pass on, may the people who were here in this church, may whatever faces are in these seats, always preach the same gospel message. We are to be faithful as a pillar and a buttress of truth, generation after generation, until Jesus comes back. So Jesus hasn't changed his message. We see that the 12 disciples, whom Jesus has named apostles, are continuing to travel with Jesus from city to city and village to village. Now, we know that there's a larger group of disciples who uh, like to follow Jesus around, but we're drawing emphasis here to the 12, right? These men whom Jesus has called apostles, they are going to have an important role to play in the beginnings of the church. Jesus is spending time with them. He's training them for ministry. But that's not the surprising thing. And that's not what would cause people to scratch their heads. What was surprising is that Luke tells us in verses 2 and 3 that there was also a group of women who traveled with Jesus and with his apostles. Now, why was this unusual? We have to understand it was not common practice for Jewish rabbis to give women any attention at all. In that patriarchal society, women could often be overlooked, dismissed, and demeaned. They could not testify in court. Women had no political or legal authority. Unlike these 12 apostles who were being trained to be leaders of the Christian church, many in the first century would have looked at these female disciples that were following Jesus and listening to him teach and learning from him, and they would have wondered, why is Jesus letting them stick around? Why does he spend so much time teaching women? Why is he discipling them? What good could be the witness of women? It also opened up Jesus and the apostles to allegations of unseemliness. I think there's a reason that this passage comes immediately after the last one where we saw a harlot anointing Jesus' feet with oil. The subtle implication is that there was something about Jesus' (coughs) Excuse me. My drink is gone. I had it right there. I don't know what I did with it. Benjamin, go to my office and see if you can find my drink and bring it. Okay, back to normal. The subtle implication is that there was something about Jesus' relationship with women that seemed to cross the lines of what Pharisees found appropriate. It wasn't, of course, that Jesus was in any way inappropriate with women, but it was the fact that he was actually willing to give them the time of day, to actually pay attention to them, to actually have conversations with them, to deliver them from their diseases, to teach them the truth. Uh, Even the disciples in John 4 were surprised when they found that Jesus had been speaking with the Samaritan woman at the well. They were surprised because she was a Samaritan. 
But also because it was not normal for men to speak to a woman that was not a family member or to a close male friend. There is a sense in which most in first century Israel seem to have learned all the wrong lessons about gender. Genesis 1 is clear in its teaching that men and women are equal in dignity and are to play a role in family and society life that complement one another. But the Pharisees in particular had taken almost all complementarity out of the picture. They had largely taken women themselves almost completely out of the picture, pushing women to the periphery of social and civil life. But this was unbiblical. The fact is, the Old Testament scriptures are unabashed in showing that women are fully capable of being robust thinkers, hard workers, even mighty leaders when the responsibility falls to them. We could look at the Proverbs 31 woman. We could look at the story of Deborah or the account of Esther. If you want to see an account of a woman full of knowledge and courage and great wisdom, go home today and read 2 Samuel 20. And see how a woman in the town of Abel was able to bring a battle to a screeching halt and ultimately she saved her hometown. The fact that she is unnamed is important. She was simply a common woman, but she stood up and did what was needed in order to save the lives of many. And so Jesus comes along and he does not discount women. He knows that they play a mighty role in this world and that they are to play an important role in his kingdom. Frankly, no man worth his salt exists apart from women who helped make him that way. And more importantly, Jesus values women for their own sake. He came to earth to save sinners, all kinds of sinners, including women sinners. He came to earth because he loves female souls as well as male souls. He created them all. He cherishes them all. He loves each and every person, each and every individual, and calls all to be saved. Jesus did not target his ministry to some identity group. He did not preach only to the rich or only to the poor. He did not send away the Gentiles from Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him speak. And we never find him turning away women who want to learn. Jesus was indiscriminate in his preaching in this way. He gave his message to all who had ears to hear. And so should we. Now, let's note the women in this passage and what we're told about them. So first, see in verse 2 that Luke tells us that these women had all been delivered from evil spirits and infirmities. In other words, these were women who had once been in great distress, uh, whether because of harassment by demons or because of sickness and disease. But as he did for so many, Jesus had healed these women. Don't stumble over the idea of demon possession, okay? Satan has fought against the purposes of God in every generation. But with the coming of Jesus to earth, there was an escalation. 
And so we do see something in the Gospels that we don't see much of in the Old Testament or even after the days of the Gospels. We see numerous examples of men and women being possessed. Interestingly, since the times of Christ, it has been on the frontiers of mission that Christians have most encountered the phenomenon of demon possession. In other words, when the gospel comes in power and authority to a place of darkness, it's as if the word of God pulls these demons from their corners of subtle manipulation and they begin to be revealed in more obvious ways. In the gospels, we see various afflictions brought upon people when they are possessed. Uh, The list includes seizures and insanity, frenzies, hypochondria, blindness, deafness, and the inability to speak. The person being possessed is called a demoniac, and that person often has one or more of these symptoms, but also something else that reveals that this is more than just a normal sickness. They often not only behave unusually, but they will often speak with with an unusual voice or have unusual strength. Sometimes the person is completely mentally sane, as in the case of the mute man of Matthew 9, or the blind and mute man in Matthew 12, and yet their physical conditions were the result of this phenomenon. This is important. The gospel writers make a distinction between those who are sick with normal ailments and those whose ailments come from a demonic influence. So, for example, in Mark 1, verses 32 and 34, we're told that people brought two kinds of hurting folks to Christ, those who were sick and those who were oppressed by a demon. And we're told that Jesus did two things. He cured the ones who were sick, and he cast out the demons from those who were demoniacs. A clear reading of gospel passages shows us that the claims of demon possession were not simply superstition. They were not people ascribing to demons what was in fact mental illness, not at all. In fact, as we've seen, some examples of demon possession had nothing to do with mental ailments. But they were always telltale signs that the affliction was more than just a medical condition. In fact... We find that most of the times the demoniacs themselves say that they're possessed. Or even more often, that the demons themselves actually speak and do not hide that they are possessing the person. They make themselves known. And the family members of the demoniacs assent as well. In other words, doctors didn't have to look closely at a patient and try and diagnose, is there a demon involved here or not? No. In demon possession, the demons made themselves known. It was clear. It was obvious. Satan is a great counterfeiter. He wants to be like God. And just as God puts his Holy Spirit inside of us when he saves us, And brings us to salvation. So Satan seems to have a purpose. And sometimes putting the spirit of a demon inside of a human being. But whereas the Holy Spirit works through our personality. Whereas the Holy Spirit doesn't take over us. But rather moves us. Works in us. Compels us to love and joy and peace and faithfulness and the fruit of the spirit. Unholy spirits do the opposite. They like to come into a person and take over. And the fruit they bear is the opposite of the Spirit's fruit. These unholy spirits come inside someone and the result is pain and chaos and wickedness. 
Now, why that reminder about demon possession and what it is? Well, because the first woman mentioned here is remarkable. We are told that she had been delivered from seven demons. Her name is Mary Magdalene. And that statement about seven demons is really interesting. Uh, We've said before that there were certain miracles of Jesus that caught people's attention. Certain miracles of Jesus where the news just spread like wildfire. Uh, That would include the healing of the leper in Luke 5. The raising of the young man from the dead in Luke 7. But here is another person who seems to have become somewhat famous because of the uniqueness of the miracle that took place in her life. She wasn't just delivered from one demon. She was delivered from seven. Now, based on what I gave you earlier, some of the symptoms of being possessed by a demon, can you imagine what this lady's life must have looked like before Jesus came and delivered her? It is not hard to see why she would now want to be one of his faithful followers. It is not hard to understand why she would want to be a worshiper of this Savior. And Mary Magdalene will be present when Jesus is dying on the cross, even when most of his disciples have deserted him. Mary Magdalene will be there when the stone is rolled in front of the tomb, and she will be one of the women who finds the tomb empty on Easter Sunday morning. In fact, the resurrected Jesus will appear to her and the other Mary before he appears to his apostles. Now, her name indicates that she was from Magdala. This is a town on the southwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. And beyond those facts, we know nothing else about her. It seems to be that she was known mainly for the miracle that happened in her life. She was possessed by seven demons. Jesus delivered her. Some people have falsely joined together the lady from our last passage, the harlot who anointed the feet of Jesus, with Mary in this passage. And so in popular culture, Mary Magdalene will often be portrayed as something of a prostitute. There is no indication anywhere in the Gospels, that Mary was ever a prostitute. This is bringing together two different people from two different moments in Jesus' ministry and bringing them together into one. Mary's story is not one of deliverance from harlotry. Her story is deliverance from the assault of demonic oppression. In Mel Gibson's movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ, he actually presents Mary Magdalene as the woman who was about to be stoned for adultery. And Jesus says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Again, there is no evidence anywhere in the Bible that Mary Magdalene was that woman. What we find is that Jesus delivered many women just like many men, from all kinds of horrific sins and situations. And Mary became a faithful follower of Christ and a a disciple who wanted to learn. Well, second, we're told here of Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Now, I find that really interesting. Here we see a connection to King Herod himself. 
Uh, the word translated household manager is used to speak of someone who is given charge of an important person's assets. Uh, the fact that this man, Chusa, was given authority over Herod's financial interests showed that he was an important man. And here is this wife having been helped in some way by Christ, and she's following Christ, and she's learning from Christ. We're beginning to see that the gospel, while it's being preached mainly to common people, it's beginning to make inroads even into the higher strata of society. And throughout Luke's gospel and into the book of Acts, we're going to see again and again how the gospel comes to, yes, the lowest in society, but sometimes the gospel really does reach high places. And I think it's really interesting that when we get to Acts 13, among the men in the church of Antioch who lay hands on Paul and Barnabas and send them out on their first missionary journey, we're going to find a man named Menaean. And we are told that that man was brought up with Herod. Some think he was Herod's foster brother. Others believe he was Herod's lifelong friend. But either way, that man, we find him as a Christian in Antioch, laying hands on Paul and Barnabas and sending him out. It shows us that the gospel really did make it into Herod's inner circle. And that some of those folks actually came to know and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Joanna is another example of a lady who was present at the empty tomb. She is one of those who encounters the risen Christ even before the apostles. So we have Mary Magdalene. We have Joanna. And then in verse 3, we're told about Susanna. Oh, Susanna, we know absolutely nothing about her. <laughs> we know nothing other than her name. Uh, my guess is that she's probably well known in heaven, that our loved ones who have died in the Lord, they know who she is. But all we know is that she was counted among these women who was delivered by Christ and followed him. Her name is probably mentioned because some in the early church who would have read Luke's gospel would have known something of this lady, right? It's why he doesn't tell us Susanna, daughter of so-and-so, right? Apparently, this woman was so well-known that all he has to say is Susanna, and other Christians are like, oh, yeah, yeah, Susanna. So she seems to have been somebody of some note in the early church. Now, note that Luke says there were many other women as well who were following Christ. We've already seen before that besides the 12 disciples that were called apostles, there are many other disciples who are following Jesus around. Now we learn that not a few of those people are women and that they are learning from Jesus. And he's not turning them away. He's teaching them. He's instructing them. He's building them up in their faith. Can't we just take a moment and praise God for so many women in our lives who were taught God's truth and then they had an impact upon us? I praise God for the Sunday school teachers and the ministers who poured so many hours into preaching and teaching so that my great-grandmother... And my grandmother would later point me to Jesus Christ. I pray that God will continue to raise up many 
both men and women, who are well-taught disciples able to serve Jesus in this world. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says about this passage. He says, Let the recollection of these women encourage all the daughters of Adam who read of them to take up the cross and to follow Christ. Let no sense of weakness or fear or falling away keep them back from a decided profession of religion. The mother of a large family with limited means may tell us that she has no time for religion. The wife of an ungodly husband may tell us that she dares not take up religion. The young daughter of worldly parents may tell us it is impossible for her to have any religion. The maidservant in the midst of unconverted companions may tell us that in her place a person cannot follow religion. But they are all wrong, quite wrong, because with Christ nothing is impossible. Let them think again and change their minds. Let them begin boldly in the strength of Christ and trust Him for the consequences. The Lord Jesus never changes. He who enabled many women to serve him faithfully while he was on the earth can enable women to serve him and glorify him and be his disciples at the present day as well. We're not done quite yet. We have a little bit more in this passage because we find that the women that Luke has mentioned here all had something else in common. It turns out that these particular women were women of means. These were women who had access to some degree of money or property. And we find that God was working through these ladies to support Jesus' ministry, making sure that Jesus and the apostles had what they needed to survive. I find that remarkable. How was the itinerant preaching ministry of Jesus and his apostles sustained? Who were the financial backers who made the ministry of Jesus possible? In the wonderful providence of God, it was this group of delivered ladies who had a love for Jesus and a desire to see more people reached with his message of hope and salvation. One writer has said that this was the first women's missionary society for the spread of the gospel, right here in our passage. Mount Hermon, one of the marks that we have truly been reached by the mercy of Jesus is that we will be eager to see that mercy reach others as well. And just as Jesus has given so freely to us, we will give freely of what we have to see others come to know him. We see these women giving of their means. They gave of what God had entrusted to them. And so also, whether we've been entrusted with much or with little, we are called to give from what we have. It is to be our delight, a sacrifice from the heart to the God who saved us. Uh, Corinthians tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. One who gives because they believe in the mission, they have a love for the lost, and most of all, they have a love for Jesus Christ himself. So what does this look like? Well, if you're new to following Christ, the best place to start is tithing. Let it be an established principle in your life that you will give 10% of what's entrusted to you back to God and to his purposes and to his church. 
And so you give. You give to, to sustaining a gospel ministry here in our town. But you also give to help care for your brother and sister in their need. And perhaps most gloriously of all, we give to make possible the preaching of the gospel in places where the gospel has not yet been heard. Young people, let me say a word directly to you guys. So often young people speak about wanting to do radical things for Jesus. I have found that for most young Christians, the most radical things you can do are also the most basic. Uh, There are so few teenagers and 20-somethings who actually have committed prayer lives. There are so few teenagers and 20-somethings who are actually committed to reading through their Bible. There are lots of teenagers and 20-somethings who will sign up for a mission trip or a ministry project. But it's the basic things that actually make you stand out as a young, radical Christian for Christ. And it's the same thing when it comes to honoring God with our money. And so let me encourage you to start now while you are young, while frankly you're making relatively little money, to give 10% to God. And if you establish that habit now, it will become something that you're able to hold on to as you get older and move further into life. But if you don't develop the habit while you are young, it will only be harder to begin obeying God in this matter when you get older. So if you have been reached by the mercy of Jesus, if he has delivered you, then Give from your means that the gospel might reach to other people. That is the example that is set for us by these faithful women. So let us look to these women. Let us marvel at the mercy of Jesus that delivered them. Let us see that Jesus did not shut women away from ministry or discipleship, but that he taught them, poured himself into them, instructed them that they would grow in the faith. Let us learn from their testimony and example of generosity. Let us look to the Savior that they loved. And let us rest in His grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.